I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. For springs, so yeah, fuck you, springs. <laughs> okay, so and then one like takes your eye out. me <laughs> eye. <laughs> so we are back, doing more fun size, and joining us this time, Miss Rosalind Townsend. Hello. So I wanted to throw something out there that uh, we had talked a bit about on the Watchmen panel, and that something definitely I wanted to get Rosalind your take on this: the concept of misdirected fandom. Define misdirected. Well, misdirected in the sense that people who have a character who, like Rorschach in Watchmen, mm. who's a creepy guy who eats out of your dumpster and breaks fingers, is like a total misogynist. Grandpa? Grandpa? <laughs> well, he's probably smellier than Grandpa. You don't know my grandpa. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry. But, you know, like Walter White on Breaking Bad. Yeah. That he starts out the series as a regular guy, and he does terrible things to the point that he's like poisoning a child at one point. And what I'm talking about misdirected fandom is people who don't understand or acknowledge that a moral event horizon has been crossed mm. and continue to champion or become an apologeticist for that character. Yeah, I, I said it. I, I'm going to fuck up that language. Um, An apologist? A, a, thank apologist. you. There, um, see, look, we I can make brain words. An apologist? <laughs> Apologogist. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but, you know, the same thing. Nathan R. Jessup in uh, A Few Good Men. Can I, can I ask you a question for the sake of clarification? Go for it. Is there a difference between the... Fandom interpreting a character in a certain way that uh, upholds their moral integrity, even though in canon it has surpassed a certain threshold. Is there a difference between that and, say, like, fandom interpreting a character in a completely different way than is what is presented as in character most of the time? So, like, you think of Rorschach as, like, an extremely philanthropic, nice, clean-smelling individual when it's really not Rorschach at all? Well, I think there's a lack of irony in it. Okay. And it feels like there's a reading of the character that deliberately avoids or suppresses or refuses to acknowledge things that are not just subtext, but just text. Okay. Or supertext. <laughs> <laughs> like, like the example, Nathan R. Jessup in A Few Good Men, that this is a character that's played by Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. He's the villain of the movie. And you, mean, you can say things about him and perhaps somewhat sympathetic because he's treated uh, like a legitimately cool character. He's engaging. He's played by Jack Nicholson and Jack Nicholson's a great actor. He gets a great speech at the end of the movie. It's the you can't handle the truth speech. Mm -hmm. And really what we have is a lot of people who forget the fact that what he's doing in that speech is saying that national security is such a thing that you shouldn't ask questions about because you're able to live in a world that's free and because of that, I should have carte blanche to occasionally torture a recruit to the point of death, mm -hmm. which is the plot of the movie. Fun. 
Uh, the same thing, Gordon Gecko. <laughs> Gordon Gecko is okay. the yeah. You gotta get what I mean. The main character, the not the main character, the villain of Wall Street, whose big speech because he's the most compelling character and he's got the greed is good speech. People who don't understand that he's the bad guy. So it's almost you're arguing a microcosm of how people would interpret a certain character because you're only looking at it from a moral standpoint, not like an overall character standpoint. I, I think it's a character standpoint that you can only have if you are deliberately well. Uh, maybe unintentionally or deliberately ignorant of certain facts okay. that are actually happening. Well, not I wouldn't say ignorant because frequently when you argue with someone who has these things, they try to brush them off. Or it's like they play lawyer for that character. Yeah, um, I would argue that an, an interesting case for that is uh, Ducat on DS Nine. Sure. And what he, what happens is there. I mean. The, the parallel that's drawn between um, the Cardassians, Dukat's people, and the Bajorans, the people that he oppressed, it's very similar to, like, Palestine is the one that's brought up a lot. Yeah. But um, there's all sorts of weird historic precedences for one people type of people treating another people shittily, if you can use it that way. But um, they defend his actions as saying that, you know, okay, well, maybe he was misguided, but what he was doing, he thought, was ultimately for the best of the Bajoran people. And it was him oppressing a population thinking was he was uplifting it. And I don't know if it's necessarily the same case as what you're arguing in a way, because you're talking about a character who morally has done really horrible things, but has always tried to justify them, and the fandom backs him up. And it's a matter of interpretation as opposed to being willfully ignorant of something. Yeah, So uh, getting back to the Walter White example, yeah, um, especially a lot of the really bizarre and, I would argue, malapplied mm -hmm. uh, anger that's directed at his wife, Skylar White, over yeah. the course of the series, yeah. is that she is legitimately terrified of her husband, especially after she finds out what he does. Mm -hmm. And she never even gets a full picture of what he does. Yeah. That he poisons a child, he lets his... Uh, partner's girlfriend die he does terrible violent things at the beginning it's, it takes like three days for him to kill somebody justifiably but later in the series he can do it at the drop of a hat could i argue that at the end of the day as you know horrible and destructive as some of the some of the opinions that these fans might have about a specific character can be you're still ultimately doing it to aid the suspension of disbelief and it doesn't i mean to be fair, I'm kind of arguing against my own side here because I argue at I, I bitch at those people on the internet all the time, frankly. But on the other hand, they're also doing it to maintain a fictional vision of what they like. And at the end of the day, I don't know if I really want to mess with that as stupid as I think their opinion is. You, it would be different. Sorry, I think it would be different if ultimately, like we were talking about a humanitarian crisis and they were defending the actions of like Slobodan Milosevic, for example. But I mean, if you're talking about Walter White or Gul Dukat or whatever, I think at the end of the day, it's fictional. It, it is. Well, I, I was thinking we have a mutual acquaintance of ours that uh, the last conversation I had with this mutual acquaintance was a person who loved the prequel trilogy to such a degree that could not let go of the fact that uh, the execution of the character of the character of Anakin Skywalker was poor was actually so poor they were unable to motivate the reason why this ruddy-haired kid becomes a genocidal monster at the end of it um, and they just kind of just speed speed up the car towards the end and they just go, they skip right to it and there's this discussion at an, an at an after show that went 
hours that went hours, hours and hours and hours past the point where it could even be considered any logic behind trying to defend the character of Anakin Skywalker. Um, it became a filibuster. It was, and it became a filibuster. <laughs> but maybe that's more to what she's talking about, is that there are people who, the only way they can actually reconcile consistency of a character that might be two-dimensional or, well, not the right two-dimensional, but um, that, they, that they themselves can justify consistency is to um, deliberately miss the point. I think for me, it's it's not only just missing the point, but it's also deliberately missing things that make the character more complex and interesting. Okay. Hmm. That there's a, the complexity of Walter White isn't that he's a good guy, therefore everything he does is justified. And the story isn't trying to do that. The story is creating a mess. It's creating something that is gray and murky, and you don't have easy answers. And it's all about kind of the, you know, like, you drop a frog in boiling water, it hops right out. But if you turn the temperature up slowly, Walter White is a character where they turned the temperature up slowly on him doing worse and worse things. And this is really how a lot of crime fiction is written, that you do right. a thing that is largely justified or has a sympathetic motivation behind it, but it's bad. And it becomes easier to make another decision. And pretty soon you're making huge decisions, but it's happened gradually enough that it hasn't felt like a break in the character. And what I mean is people who don't understand the fact that he's doing things that are bad. It says, well, he's the main character, so he's right. He's yelling and terrorizing his wife, so it must be right because he's the main character. Mm. There's a point at which you can talk about something fictional until you're blue in the face or if there's a filibuster or anything like that. But you can ultimately go, how much does someone want to think about a piece of art? And that's honestly what we're discussing here in a way. It's art. It's storytelling. It's an art form. So if you're having discussions like that, what it sounds like is if you're taking a three-dimensional character and you're effectively simplifying them by the way you're interpreting them, you're kind of implicitly saying, I don't want to think about this art on that level. And do you think that people are entitled to that? I think you can. I mean, they've said this about the movie The Matrix, mm -hmm. that you can read it on multiple levels, that you can have a deep movie or a dumb movie. See, I'd argue that it's ultimately up to the person and the level they want to enjoy or think about it. Like, I mean, there's pretty much any show, if you want to interpret it in a certain way, can blow your fucking mind if you think about it in a certain way. But, or, sorry, that was redundant. Robot jocks being one of them. There you go. Yeah. Ed, Ed, and Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, you know, ultimately someone is entitled to the level of enjoyment that they want. I guess it's, for me, it's a place where they're taking the enjoyment out and their interpretation is pointing to things in themselves that are kind of off-putting or they're, scary. Okay, they're taking out the enjoyment for you. Well, no, but... what I'm saying is, like, one thing that uh, Ellen Moore encountered with signings of Watchmen and stuff as the series came out was people would come up to him who seemed to identify with Rorschach in a way that was off-putting to him and saying the world would be better if there were more people like this in the real world. Okay. And then that gets into whether or not your interpretation of a fictional character is what your actual um, sort of philosophy is. You can defend a fictional character and feel very differently about the way things are manifest in the real world if an actual person is doing those sorts of actions. That separation between reality and something fictional, I think, is the key. Yeah, and I guess I, it bothers me a little bit that when you bring up nuance in a character, like I think Rorschach is a brilliant character. I think he's a fascinating character. He's also a very sympathetic character in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But he's not an aspirational character. And I worry a little bit about people who can't separate something that's sympathetic to something that's aspirational. Like, 
Superman or Steve Rogers, you know, Captain America, these are characters that we look up to, that they're supposed to represent an ideal that's better than what we have. And then there's characters like Walter White and Rorschach who are sympathetic, but they're not something that we're trying to say this is the right way to be. And in fact, oftentimes the story is trying very explicitly to say the opposite. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of difficult in our culture to take in the notion of learning by negative example. And going, okay, well, this is a sympathetic character. Well, without, is... without sounding too much like a parable, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Without yeah. it being really ham-fisted. Yeah. yeah. So um, the, then going, you know, hey, this character, you can feel sympathetic for him. You can learn from them. But at the end of the day, you don't want to be this person because the same fucking thing's going to happen to you. Yeah. So. I think that's a big thing is these characters usually have dark endings, too. And, I mean, Walter White has a dark ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rorschach has a dark ending. They do. They are often... Don't go out in a way that rewards them from being what they are. I mean, there are admirable things about characters that are morally reprehensible, people that you wouldn't like if you met them in real life. And I, you talked a bit about that, like you said, uh, Casey, on the episode we did on Watchmen, the example of uh, George R. R. Martin being put off by people who didn't, right. who were applying the, or identifying a lot with the character of the Hound. And forgetting the fact that this is a guy who ran down a child with his horse and laughed about it. Yeah. And and uh, interestingly enough, the the meta commentary on uh, this whole thing was that uh, it is really – oh, what's the fat kid's name? Damn it. I forget the fat kid's <laughs> name. Are you talking about Cartman or are you talking about – No, on Game of Thrones. <laughs> oh, Hot Pie. No, 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 no. The guy the, the oh, Sam. Mets watch. Sam. This, is, this has changed my view of Game of Thrones uh, so much no, in just such that, a short amount of time. The meta commentary is that, uh, he, that he wishes – Judge R. R. Martin wishes everyone, all the women would love Sam because – George R. R. Martin is Sam. <laughs> well, then he's, <laughs> he's a the bookish lov- fat guy. Yeah, he's the lovable bo- bookish fat guy who's a you know he's a coward. But I think a lot of it too, and I think Sam the Hound, Rorschach. Um, I d- they never went into this with Walter White, but uh, sympathy that is built on a character through them having a tragic childhood. And I've noticed a lot that having a sad or abusive childhood goes a long way to making a character sympathetic. Sure does. That it's practically a cliche at this point. It's certainly a crime noir cliche. So I guess the question I want to throw out to both of you guys, especially you, Rosalind, is at what point does a character so morally reprehensible that you can't buy that off with just they were beaten as a kid? Uh, That's not fair. It depends on the show or the story. I I think, honestly, I get more... um, Put off by something if it's a what? What does Sam call it? The card line. Yes. Yeah. The notion if like the people involved of the production of that work end up doing something morally reprehensible to a point where I'm like, no, I can't do this anymore. Sorry. You, well, what, well, what about another facet? What if the fans of the of the work do something that's reprehensible and being associated with it makes you uncomfortable? So, all what about Battlefield Earth? Oh, what did they do? Why? Why can't you? You're talking about the Church of Scientology. Yeah, oh, well, I mean right, that it's okay. associated with the Church of Scientology. Um, I cannot separate myself, even though it was one of my favorite, my dad's favorite sci-fi novels. Actually, I cannot separate myself from um, Battlefield Earth or or really anything that Tom Cruise is in because it has to me the association, the association of uh, look who this is benefiting, mm-hmm. or 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 alternatively like insane clown posse like. <laughs> Why would I want to be associated, even if I thought that the music was interesting, which I don't? I um, think the it, quality it, would keep you away, regardless. But of... I, but I would also feel I would also feel uncomfortable because I'd be like, well, the legions of fans that represent what Insane Clown Posse is are embarrassing subhumans. <laughs> no, they're not subhumans. They're yeah. just embarrassing. They're yeah. embarrassing but... humans. Humans goes down pretty far. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid humans. 
who mans? You know what I mean? Like the, even that can sully the reputation of of the work that's there and can make you feel very differently about how you interpret morality and uh, the the applicability of characters in your moral universe. That's really tough because I can I can disregard the idiotic asinine behavior of the occasional fan because just because we like something in common it doesn't mean that I am necessarily a reflection of those people even though some of the stereotypes are there so I think I can get over that a bit easier Um, actors doing stuff or characters there's there's always that idea of look at ultimately this is fictional Mm -hmm. so I mean I can even watch a show that has a war criminal in it and seem to be okay but it's the people behind the scenes involved, if they do something bad, I think that that affects me a lot but, more. But I'd say that it's, well, I mean, this, that, certainly that's the way it affects you. For me, I mean, I think our myth-making is now our popular culture, and this, you know, the cave paintings and the epic poems are now TVs and movies and books. Um, and and I think our culture says a lot more about us and our aspirations. So there's certainly fluff. There's certainly, there's certainly popcorn. Um, and there's things that are definitely made that are intended to say something about the moral landscape, about humans, about the, what we do to ourselves. Um, that's that's taking a specific point. Um, and the only reason why I would I why I wouldn't be able to just whole cloth say, well, it's fiction, so sort of any interpretation is out there. Is I think these fiction lays the groundwork for the way we think about ourselves, mm-hmm. and in that way, culture is important to be sort of rolling around and struggling with and trying to elevate some things and trying to denigrate others because of how important that struggle is. I want to touch a little bit on something that you said earlier, or at least implied, Rosalind, mm-hmm. or is it infer? Okay. I don't remember. I think if I say something, it's imply, and if you hear me saying it, it's infer. Okay. But you know what? Who cares? <laughs> the internet cares. No, they don't. That ends all of you. So uh, you, you touched on this, I at least alluded to the idea of author intent, yeah. Going into this, that, and this is something that I kind of separate. We were talking a bit about the elements of the depiction of rape in Watchmen, sure, and the relationship between the original Silk Spectre and the comedian. And uh, we talked to our good friend Rob Kelly, who said that he had given this book to a girlfriend, and she was really put off by that because it is a story of somebody having a fucked up falling in love with their past rapist and that is fucked up and this is where i think author intent to me is is supremely important is does the author know that's fucked up and this is the difference to me at least between watchmen and something like twilight yeah the twilight depicts a really unhealthy relationship and the author seems blissfully unaware of it and in fact treats it like it's ideal Mm -hmm. where a watchman knows it's fucked up and every time talking about this relationship the the daughter that came out of this this fucked up relationship is horrified by its existence and before she even knew that she was the product of it she was horrified by it as well even before she knew there was any consensual sex and all involved in this and i think that the fact that the the story treats it as fucked up is it goes a long way towards dealing with those sorts of issues does the author know that what they're depicting is morally reprehensible or terrible or creepy and I've seen a, a lot of movies where I'm supposed to sympathize with a character and the, the author and the actors and the people making this don't seem to know what they're accidentally making. It's like there's intent mm. and there's execution. Yes. And then uh, you could throw into what Casey was saying is the idea of should culturally that be treated as fluff that can be disregarded or something that adds to a wider narrative that we should be concerned about. And 
I, I don't know, frankly. And yeah. there are times when I'll look at something and that passing thought will be there. Like, did the people really know what they were making when they made it? And I, we were talking about the video game L.A. Noir and the idea, ability to tell where someone's lying. I'm terrible at reading faces. I'm terrible at determining <laughs> intent. I'm, I'd fuck it up every time. If I tried going through every show I watched or every novel or comic I read and trying to go, well, were they really trying to look at this in a negative light or not? I, I can't tell you. And that, and that certainly depends on I, – I know you very well, Mike, and uh, it's always fascinating to unwind something that you've seen or read that I have, have also done it because you are going to focus – almost almost obsessively on the way the characters are written and how authentic they are and what sort of not like nice twists and turns and i guarantee you i don't ever see things the way my first time through a work the way that you do um so from from my perspective i'm i'm usually looking for sort of internal consistency of a narrative i'm usually looking for whether or not i think that it's reprehensible like i think at a zero level i'm doing that but i think the the funny part is, is i think you 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 personally would be more f- able to focus on the uh the character weaknesses the strengths and weaknesses and the morality of those characters because i think you drew most of your uh your uh your template for character reading from superman yeah, I can I can see a lot of that there. I, I think the the thing I kind of want to pull from too, if we're talking about not just looking at the character, but looking at critiques of the character, hmm. the first thing I want to do is I never want to tell somebody that they're wrong about the way they feel about a story. Uh, hmm. I mean, your feelings are always. I mean, your feelings are your feelings, and you're always right. the number one expert on how you felt about something. Right. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> But I, I wonder sometimes, too, uh, that sometimes people can make a judgment based on, on ignorance, that they're not interested. There's a difference between somebody who finds something that you don't like in a thing that you do like, mm-hmm. like people who flip out, you know, at a woman saying that there's a problematic sexist element in, like, a video game. Right. And the first thing you should ask yourself when somebody points out that thing is, well, is there merit to this argument that's being made? And, and can I be honest with myself? I mean, brutally honest. And a lot of times there's a really good case for a lot of this stuff. Um, I remember there was a, a critic who got death threats because she pointed out in a 9.5 review of GTA 5, where she overwhelmingly praised it, pointed out that, yes, there are you know sexist elements in this game. We have to be able, and I said this on the last uh, 0.5 episode, is that we need to be able to hear criticisms of things that we like mm-hmm. without getting so defensive. We can't act like somebody's kicking our dog or saying right. something about our mother. It's just a piece of fiction. I mean, I think, again, I think we'd all agree that stories are important and that they say a lot about the culture in which they come from. But we have to be critical of stuff, especially stuff we like ourselves. Right. And, you know, sometimes... There are elements that we should be critical of or I think, uh, you know, just go, well, that that was really shitty. There's things that I love that have shitty elements in them. And I want to be able to approach it like an adult and go, yeah, that was that was bad. And I think we got to be cool with that. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that as part of the sort of wider idea of stories as a mode of escapism for people, they want to believe that because it's something that they use to escape into, that it's perfect and can't be touched? I wonder. I think that there's an experience they get from it or that they can also not just, you know, it's escapist, I think is the most important word there. That, I mean, something like GTA Five, it's a game where you can go into a cartoon world where the rules of regular life do not apply to you and there's no consequences that you have to follow up on. And you can actually work out a lot of the aggression for things that you can't do in your real life. 
And I get that, but I don't think we should be so defensive because we get that emotional release from something that we act like monsters. I, I think that you're, it's funny the way you described it, Rosalind, because you, you were like, well, it's maybe it's a world that people build in their heads as perfect and inviolable. But what I would I would argue to the contrary is that because people seem to be so insulted when that world is disrupted by someone else's opinion about it, I don't think they're perfect at all. I think they're insecure. I think that's the funny part about the about this 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 analysis of of story and when their moral weight is that it is imperfect. I'm sorry. I I should have clarified. I didn't mean to in, um, imply or infer that <laughs> or both <laughs> or either of the things. Interpolate. Talk about the thingies. What have um, that the uh, opinion was perfect, but that the internalization was right. So, well, what I'm saying is that I think the internalization belies an insecurity, and it's super and, fragile. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think we need yeah. to overcome that sort of insecurity about. Sure, I, that's the same reason I don't. I don't well, like Well, there are things worth defending though. Yeah, I think there are. And I think that if somebody says something that's just factually untrue, you should say something. But when somebody's thing is ultimately opinion like I didn't like this thing because X, unless what the thing they said is factually untrue, then it's mm. an opinion and mm-hmm. you know, this is my opinion based on this fact. And it may be different than my interpretation of it, and we got to be cool with that. Yeah. You know, there's that's I've, the that's the adult thing to do. It's totally the adult <laughs> thing to do because there is no movie out there that isn't somebody's favorite. It doesn't matter how fucking bad it is, and we also have to be able to do that. I mean, I've seen this on a number of again to to beat this drum more. There's all of these uh, nerd shows and stuff where. They're about to criticize something, and they have to put in this weird preface of, well, you know, it's okay to like this. And it's like, why are we validating that? Of course it's fucking okay to like anything. You know, mm. it you don't have to defend that. Can we get to the point where it's like, I like stories where colorfully clad people in capes punch robots and asteroids and time travel and do all sorts of weird, wacko, whimsical things. And I can either get defensive and insecure about this, in which I'd create a movie like Man of Steel (laughs) to try to prove to a bunch of non-existent bullies that it's okay for me to like childhood characters into my adulthood. So I just drag them down in the mud to prove that these things are super serious and superheroes should be taken seriously. Can you see that that thing of skulls he's drowning in? (laughs) You know, that's that's what I kind of come from is can... Can I be secure in my fandom? And of course you can, because everything is somebody's one-star review on Amazon, like we said. Yeah, yeah. There's there's nothing. Somebody's life was changed in some profound way by <laughs> Jaws the Revenge. <laughs> Somebody was. Somebody was like, they, they became like a world-spanning marine biologist, and they're like, it's all thanks to watching this shitty movie. So, I mean, and I'm You not, know what? Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> like- it's good for them if they found their dream in that one. It doesn't mean that I'm going to hold back my opinion of Jaws or Avenger. Sure. But, you know, it doesn't change the fact that they've done valuable work in their field if I say that this movie is shit. I watched Kevin Costner in The Postman, and now I'm a postal worker. <laughs> There's somebody. You just told somebody's life story. That, I totally did. That happened somewhere. They're like, this is a noble profession. <laughs> you even had to do the delivery. <laughs> yeah. Somebody was, like, super. I mean. I, I think that's a big thing about being, you know, critics of culture is that we should we're we are the expert on our own opinion. We should be able to say that something is shit. We should point out elements that are hilarious or problematic or weird 
because that stuff ultimately makes it more, not less, interesting. Well, uh, uh, let's take let's take my my ultimate example of the villain that I root for, which is Cobra Commander. <laughs> so, but it, the stakes of the GI Joe universe are quite small, and so if there was a a, a GI Joe episode that flipped the script and um and Cobra actually did take over the world and enslave everyone, and well, I don't know what they would actually do if they won the the world. Um, it doesn't matter. Like it's not gonna it's not gonna turn legions of children into criminals, and it's gonna cause more deaths in real life. It's GI Joe. Um, but to me, Cobra Commander is more interesting because he's the one who actually has these really imaginative plans about how to change the world because he's unhappy with the way the, with the world that he sees. Um, and because of that, he is more interesting than the GI Joe characters, as diverse as they are. Plus, he has that really cool voice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, in in that respect, I have I, I think I have an opinion that's divergent of the intent of the show, but it also is like the intent of the show is never to take itself very seriously considering it's talking toys. Yeah, I think the same thing with people who talk about the drug subculture of Scooby-Doo or the communist <laughs> interpretation of the Smurfs. <laughs> it's it's funny and I can enjoy it and I will also, you know, share and join in in it, but I won't actually mean it literally. I often right. throw it out with irony, but people who genuinely think that Walter White doesn't do anything wrong kind of scare me. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that's that's something that bleeds into the real world. It's like, is that how you process information? Is that how you determine who's the good guy and who's... I mean, not protagonist, antagonist, but good guy, bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the stuff that, that really kind of puts me off. Well, there there was a meme that was going around a while back that was... It was basically a person says, you know, I came out here to have fun and I'm feeling so attacked right now. Well, my interpret... I've never even seen Breaking Bad and my interpretation of Walter White is feeling pretty attacked right now. Mm. <laughs> yep. Attacked. Uh, it's, it's like again, uh, oh, <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So I want to get into something that I have gone back and forth on. I don't want to do it as a contest for our show because I'm terrified that it will hit a wall and then drop like those birds in Duck Hunt when you shoot them. <laughs> and I, that's the thing is you throw out a contest, you want to have a bunch of entries. So for me, for this to be a success is I want to get one response to this. <laughs> All right. So setting the bar high. Yeah. The first, yes. The very first radio versus the Martians non-test. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking again about, we were talking about the aftermath of talking about Watchmen and uh, Rob Kelly brought up. The Dark Knight Returns, which was this radical interpretation of Batman by Frank Miller back in the 1980s, that he was this hulking, scary, almost fascist, antisocial, angry, vengeance-driven guy who did not like his fellow superheroes, who's incredibly paranoid and drives a tank around Gotham City. <laughs> so he's just like, Arr! and you look at the covers and the way Frank Miller draws it. So this is the idea I had. Maybe Batman isn't the only character we can interpret this way. I want to see the listeners to Radio vs. the Martians give us their Frank Miller interpretations <laughs> of children's characters, whether yes! it's Archie Andrews or Paddington Bear, Captain Planet. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh. I want to see a grim and gritty Winnie the Pooh. Curious George. Oh. I want to see somebody oh, wow. say, I want to do a story that catches the, up with the this. The Berenstein Bears. Berenstein Bears. Because <laughs> that was the whole thing with Dark Knight Returns. It's let's go back to a few, possible future for this character where they're at a low point and they sort of have to come back. You know, the Dark Knight rises, so to speak, <laughs> and becomes this kind of crazy, grizzled badass. Oh, Smokey the Bear? <laughs> you mentioned the Smurfs earlier. The Smurfs. <laughs> like... I want to see somebody, uh, seriously, just go into Google Image Search, look up Dark Knight Returns Batman, get an idea of what that art style is. I want to see people try to emulate it because it's so distinctive. 
it's so like <laughs> that I I would just kind of always reminds me of like a universal horror movie, you know, like yeah. it just has that. Yeah, it's a bit. It, I don't know how to describe it's, it. They're sort of built like like a tank. He's like a really thick dude. Um, who always has little tears in his costume. He's like wrinkly and just grizzled. So I want to see somebody try to emulate that kind of style, whether it's exactly like Frank Miller or just draws a little bit from Frank Miller. And I'm terrified we won't get any responses, <laughs> so I don't want to make it official or sure. throw a prize out there. Sure. But I, I just want at least one or two, because I know. I'll draw at least one. Yes, so. thank you. I'll draw one. <laughs> I don't care which character it is, but if it has a sort of a childhood sort of attachment, I want you to, to destroy somebody's childhood, Rosalind. Okay, it might be Captain Planet. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I want to I sort of see this stuff happen, um, even if one or two years, because I know we've got a lot of artists who listen to this show, and I want to see... Do we have any hope of getting a response? Of course we do. You win diddly squat. Yes. Nothing! <laughs> it's like the end of uh, Willy Wonka. Willy Wonka would be good. Grim and gritty Willy Wonka. Yeah. I'm sure someone's... Well, that was basically the reboot of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, wasn't it? It was. It's really off-putting, because the original Willy Wonka is clearly an adult who enjoys being childish, where the new one is kind of like Michael Jackson. Okay, but I want to say that uh, I, we don't have any stipulations in this contest. Just don't do Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes pissing on anything, because that one's done. <laughs> that one's <laughs> never again. Don't uh, do it anymore. Because you're just pissing on Bill Watterson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are, and he's not getting any money from it. He doesn't get a dime from those. For some reason, I saw that as him pissing on Sam Watterson, the guy from Law and Order. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm like, no, why would you do that? Jack McCoy, Yeah, no! that's, that's totally Jack McCoy's secret <laughs> fetish, is being pissed on. Pissed on by a, a children's character. <laughs> so actually, speaking of people who don't get a dime from anything our good friend rob kelly of aquaman shrine fire and water podcast fame he was on our watchman episode you probably know a piece of art that he does or has done because it's appearing on t-shirts and on the back of cars you know that that kind of uh dual monochromatic picture of bill murray with the beard Mm -mm. you'll sometimes you've seen it before yes uh you'll notice it now i'll point it out to you guys if i spot it somewhere but our friend rob kelly designed that but decided not to copyright it because he doesn't own bill murray's face right and now he sees it everywhere and i feel bad so folks go buy go buy one of his books or something because the guy is well well deserved and bill murray if you're listening yeah seriously (laughs) bill murray if i can get a picture of you with our good friend rob kelly oh speaking of bill murray I need I you did you see the uh the first the first image the first production still from the new Ghostbusters? Yes. Yes, I have. I want I I need I need the feedback from me? From you. You're the ultimate Ghostbusters fan. You're I, you're the biggest Ghostbusters fan I know, Mike. I I'm I'm coming at this with incredibly low expectations. I sort of said what it is that I would want this Ghostbusters movie to be. It feels a bit like they're doing a direct remake, which is in the direction of stuff I don't want. I, I worry a little bit that they're trying to do somebody else's story mm. where the that, this is something I've said a million times. The characters in the original Ghostbusters that are played by, you know, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson are written specifically for those people and their comedic strengths. And I worry that taking these incredibly talented actresses and forcing them into those archetypes and playing against what characters that should be built based on their strengths and their chemistry. Right. And trying to make them do another person's story, I, I, I'm really cynical about it because I'm cynical about all remakes. And I, I don't know. I guess what I would like to do, if, if you were to ask me to write a Ghostbusters movie for these actresses, what I would do is get uh, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg to write the script. 
and before they write the script, hang out with these four actresses for like a month and figure out what it is that they do really, really well and write it specifically for them. Don't do the exact plot of Ghostbusters. I think the whole idea, and I've said this a billion times, is it's a story about rogue weirdo nerds, the type who would have like a public access channel talking about the end of the world. (laughs) What if those people turned out to be right and then they save the world? And keep that core of it. These are weirdos. I'm sorry. So you're saying the rotating panelists for Ask an Atheist should have should become the <laughs> Ghostbusters, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll sign up. Okay. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I, that's that's kind of my take on it. I'm incredibly cynical about this. I'm I'm really cynical about any kind of remake, especially something that like Ghostbusters that I have a lot of a lot of affection for. It's really one of my favorite movies of all time. I want this to be good. But wanting isn't always enough. I've seen really, really good actors and really talented people make terrible movies before. Right, right. And I don't know. Rosalind, what is your interpretation of the Ghostbusters remake? I I only saw the one still. It's the one where all four of them are standing there. I've seen individual character shots, too. And it does look like they're going pretty closely with an exact remake of the movie, which is sad because the casting decisions do look really good. But... I don't really expect much to come from it. I wasn't, I mean, I liked the Ghostbusters movies, but I wasn't a huge fan of them. So, I mean, I, I'm kind of lukewarm on the whole thing entirely anyway. I think a lot of it, and I think this is what a lot of people get, is that the marriage, the sort of love that you have for the original steering it. And I, I guess I would be protective of it because I do like it a lot and I want it to be good. And part of me kind of wishes instead of doing a... Um, if you're going to have the hue that close to the original in terms of they have proton packs, they have the Ecto-1 and stuff like that. What if we just took it place in the same universe, say like 30 years after Ghostbusters 2, they're setting up franchises. Right. And instead of having it set in New York again, build it around these actresses setting up their franchise, these weirdo scientists, these characters setting up in something like Portland or something. Mm-hmm. In like an old Portland light- would totally have one. Portland would be great and have them built out of like an old lighthouse or something and have them do weirdo scientists. Scientist stuff, and then you can have a cameo by like Dan Aykroyd cutting the ribbon on it at the beginning, and then just build it off of some weird Portlandy sort of maybe a Lovecraftian horror thing comes back, and then they have to save Portland from you know imminent destruction. I and mean, it, there, it's like uh, the Cthulhu mythos meets with Monsanto, and it's like hippies <laughs> trying to talk about the evils of GMOs, and the Ghostbusters have to defeat. Genetically modified Cthulhu. <laughs> There's so many things you could do with it. There's so. I'm ma- starting the script right now. <laughs> this is something you've already written. Yeah, I- it's okay to admit it. Okay. So yeah, I I just I I don't know. I I kind of go back and forth. Either do something completely new, kind of like what they did with the Planet of the Apes remake, which is the core spinal concept is there, but everything else is different. Where it's what is the core of it? It's about prejudice or racism. It's about finding an other and labeling them that and why human beings can't get over our own bullshit and we blow ourselves up and destroy our own civilization because we can't move on to the world that they have in Star Trek where we have cool technology and velour uniforms and keep that same core concept but put it in a different plot and I guess I want it to be different enough. Well, isn't that a, isn't that a, uh, we talked about this on the very first podcast, the Star Trek podcast, is that my critique of the J.J. Abrams, uh, the Abrams verse is that they ripped out everything but the brainstem of the series. And so they, they had the 
characters named this, and they have the Enterprise, and they have the transporter, they have those things, and yet they've totally layered something else on the top because that's all that's minimally necessary when you have a pre-existing franchise, and you don't you don't have any real reason to follow with the with the direct continuity. But I mean, there's exceptions to those rules because uh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are exceptions to those rules, so it's hard to it's hard to say up front that it's just like naked silly fan service and uh, and it doesn't make any sense and it's just the kind of stupid that you're expecting, or if they really can uh, improve on it. But this might run afoul of my my main my main complaint with uh, remakes is that they should remake bad movies, not good ones. They should make bad movies better. That was what Battlestar Galactica was. Yeah. It was taking something that was not really well thought of that had a really great premise that they just didn't get off the ground. That it's a great idea. The idea that we create robots that wipe us out and it's the last surviving remnants of the human race in spaceships trying to find a new home being pursued by robots. And that's a story that does not say campy space adventure. It says we're running from genocide. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that they took a second hit at a great concept and knocked it out of the park the second time. I know there's people who love the original, but it just really isn't up my alley. I don't know. Rosalind? And I don't have as much punch as the new one does, too. No. Not I, much popularity. Yeah. I, I got through. I, I've never seen the original Battlestar. It's on my list of stuff because apparently I can only watch sci-fi right now that's only that's over 20 years old for some reason. That's just the way I've been lately. Yeah, you've been watching Blake 7. Yeah, <laughs> and it's all hair and bad outfits, and I'm enjoying it way so more than So you love Battlestar. Yeah, I'm thinking the original Battlestar will be perfect for hair, me. Big hair and capes and brown outfits. It's all, yeah, the future is just brown. So <laughs> what what is the deal with Blake 7? Because I know you've become like obsessed with this. Well, what what ended up happening was, first off, the whole thing is available for free on a website that shall remain nameless. So I've been able to watch the thing in, it, in its entirety. And it is... <laughs> that website, the Pirate Bay. <laughs> it's, it's YouTube, actually. So... The entire thing is on YouTube. I'm sorry I made you out of it. I was like, that's always everyone's it's name site Bay, will remain although nameless. Although you could probably get it from Pirate Bay if you wanted. No. Yeah, thanks a lot, Casey. You just got to <laughs> yeah, take thanks. it down. Damn it, YouTube. We Come were trying. Back. This was a classy operation. Come here. back, YouTube. Okay. So anyway, now that we know where it is... Um, it's fun to watch because it came out in the late 70s to early 80s. It only lasted four seasons, and there's one infamous thing that happens at the end of it that I knew about, and without knowing anything else about the show, it's that everybody dies at the end. Oh. And it kind of paved the way for a lot of different shows. Also, from, like, a fandom history standpoint, a lot of weird stuff happened in the fandom historically. It was also around the same time that the first print fanzines and fan art and fan fiction started coming out pre-internet that way. So it had a really big fan base, a lot of fan-run conventions and that kind of thing. But the story itself was... It's essentially Farscape. (laughs) It came out well before Farscape in a lot of ways. With about a ninth of the budget. Yeah, ninth of the budget. uh, I had someone that's been tweeting back and forth with me talking about it because she's watching it the first time because she saw me blogging about it and said it was filmed in someone's basement. And it's (laughs) Hmm. accurate. That's pretty much it. Hmm. They, They spent a lot of their budget on hair and clothes. Really. <laughs> so That's a fascinating kind of British sci-fi thing that I don't think really exists anymore. Maybe on the sci-fi channel a little bit to a much lesser extent, but the idea of a show that has a rock-bottom budget but incredibly ambitious hopes for what it can accomplish. Doctor, right. like Classic Doctor Who is like that, too, mm-hmm. where the idea is that you go to a completely different planet with different outfits and different robots and stuff every episode – 
And you have, like, no budget to pull it off, so you have to get really imaginative. Mm -hmm. Bubble wrap. and (laughs) (laughs) Bubble wrap. Reusing sets from other TV shows. Yes. Or um, giving wardrobe to actors when the character, or the last actor that played the character, their character died. So you had, like, a man wearing another dead guy's clothing. And, yeah. So Blake's also, Britain has, like, five television writers around this time. And the guy that created the Daleks for Doctor Who was the head writer for Blake 7. Oh, Terry Nations? Mm. Yeah, it's him. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So, man. You know, he actually still owns the rights to the Daleks. I believe that. And that's actually something that I've kind of wanted to hammer out for a long time, which is that the Daleks, going against this idea of, of people being able to own their creation, even if they exist in a shared universe that's owned by a corporation, mm-hmm. like BBC owns Doctor Who, but they have to give this guy a check every time that they use their most popular villain. And mm-hmm. that is not a bad thing. Why shouldn't somebody... Because the Daleks have appeared in non-Doctor Who things before. You remember that um, Looney Tunes back in action movie? Yeah. <laughs> You're the only one. It was you. <laughs> I also know that the Daleks showed up on an episode of, um, there's a British panel show thing that happens called the Big Fat Quiz of the Year, and it started interrogating all of these comedians that had shown up. <laughs> it was pretty great. See, I, I love that. I love that when Doctor Who's not using them, and actually that's actually part of their contract, they have to use the Daleks at least once a year to keep this deal going. <laughs> and there's like an episode of one season where they go into the minds of these people and like their their greatest terrors are on the wall in these framed portraits, and there's a Dalek in one of them, and that was their use that season of the Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are all these sort of stereotypical things about British culture you can easily mock, but the one thing that like consistently freaks me out is learning about libel and copyright law. Like, I'll, I'll, like the Dalek thing is completely new to me. I'm like, how, do, how does that even work? I don't know how different it is in the States legally with that kind of thing, but like the idea of libel law with the burden of proof. And in the States, the burden of proof uh, lies with the person who is being libeled against. Mm-hmm. And in Britain, I believe it's the opposite. The, where the, the person has to defend the claim that they made against the person. And it, uh, it's just really, really interesting stuff to learn about. <laughs> it's weird how this stuff works. And I know that the same thing happens, like you said, with the copyright law, is I know that Sherlock Holmes is public domain in the UK now, but is Sherlock Holmes public domain here? My understanding was 1923 or 25 was for the U.S. Okay. So he should be in the clear by now. You can write whatever you want about Sherlock Holmes. Because I know that there's some things that are public domain that you can use like night of the living dead all came about because they didn't put a copyright logo in like the the first frames of the movie or something. Mm -hmm. So they don't actually, they lost the rights to it really, really quickly. So you can do or do your own version of night of the living dead, or you can remake it or do whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's perfectly fine. But, um, the same thing, like I think Lovecraft is public domain. Mm -hmm. Cause most of Lovecraft was written in what the, Late teens, like 1918, 1919, or was it Yeah, later? It's, like, it's like the teens and the 20s, okay. I think. Because the there, 20s is the heart of like the pulp era. Mm-hmm. My, my understanding, too, is that there's a difference between writing something because it's copyright-free and getting something with the explicit sanction of the estate. So yeah. like, you can write a Sherlock Holmes pastiche, but if you really want it to be an official Sherlock Holmes pastiche, you have to hit up the estate of Arthur Conan Doyle. But you are legally able to even if you don't get you, that. Yeah. I mean, but it's basically fan fiction. <laughs> it is. It, it, oh, everything is fan fiction, even if you get that. Everything that is right. fan fiction. Uh, and that's the thing. It's kind of I mean, every new Spider-Man story that, that a writer who isn't Steve Ditko creates is fan fiction. Mm-hmm. Even if the company who owns him, you know, authorizes that write out or license out to that person to write that story. That's kind of weird, though, because I look at it and... Lovecraft is public domain, but Conan isn't. And they were kind of contemporary hmm. of each other. Well, you have the ability to renew copyright. 
Yeah. So somebody dropped the ball. Yeah, with Conan Doyle. There's a dearth of uh, American movies that were have fallen into public domain, either because the copyright holders failed to you have to you have to reapply for it every so often, or um, when they actually printed the film in wide release, they forgot to put the copyright notice in the film, <laughs> no. which yeah. actually makes it invalid after a certain period of time. So things like. Uh, uh, Carol Reed's Third Man with Orson Welles and Tom, Thomas uh, Thomas Cotton, is that what his name is? Um, that one's public domain. And St. Louis Confidential, some old noir ones. There's a Frank Capra movie movie that's in public domain called Meet John Doe. Like, and the incredible part is, is like, um, this only, well, it, it's a degradation to the quality of, of the film because they just get duped over and over again and resold. Um, but it's an improvement on the it's on the availability and this and the survivability of the work itself because it can be reproduced more and people will want to reproduce it because they can do it without any fear of repro- of, of uh, reproach. I, you know, I want to say those sound really familiar to me. Those titles, and I'm wondering if it's because I've actually seen them on Netflix because it's easier for Netflix to get yeah the ability I th- to. I think they can. I think they totally can because I definitely remember the Third Man, and I'm pretty sure St. Louis Confidential was another one I saw in my yeah. Netflix queue too. But I'm actually going to make something that I guess may be considered controversial, but I don't think it would be with you guys, which is that I would like to see all of these characters fall into the public domain. Because like I was saying before, everyone knows how I feel about the Man of Steel movie. I know that there's somebody out there that would make an incredible Superman movie if they had the right to. And you could have multiple interpretations of Superman, not just the one that Warner Brothers wants. And Warner Brothers has made it really clear that everything that they put out with superheroes in it is going to feel like Christopher Nolan made it, even if they didn't. That Dark Knight is the one that made them money, so we're just going to make that ad nauseum. But I know that there's so many fans out there, and you just have to look at various fan communities and them creating their own art. Obviously, they can't make money off of it. But what if they could? What if there was a fan out there who wanted to do their own you know, Batman movie or a Wonder Woman movie or, uh, you know, their own version of Wolverine or X-Men or whatever, wouldn't that make everything better? There'd be a lot of stinkers out there, but I think it's kind of like the Sturgeon's Law, which I'm a huge fan of. 90% of everything is shit. Mm -hmm. But the bigger the 100% is, the bigger that 10% gets as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I like where we are as nerds at this point, is that there's so much stuff out there that we can afford to be really picky about it in a way that we couldn't 20 years ago and it makes you wonder if that's kind of the way the future is going with there is already so much in terms of fan works already out there that it's really just a matter of time before things become a little more legally easy to obtain rights to and for that purpose yeah i just uh, the biggest barrier to that i worry is the disney lawyers because disney owns just so much and they're not going to pay four billion dollars for star wars and then let it go mm-hmm. i think there's a larger issue too which is we're talking about the website that must that must never be named www.voldemort.com um like Wait, was this where i was watching blake seven earlier <laughs> <laughs> uh I, that that youtube is a place where there are some things that um the they're they're basically their existence as pieces of audiovisual uh, uh, history will exist there and nowhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, things that are everyday stuff, like somebody's video of somebody's dog, to um, uh, student films, to you know someone copywriting, someone copying the Twilight Zone episodes and re-uploading them to YouTube. But this will be a place that is not owned by a government and is not owned publicly. It's owned by a very large but private corporation and houses the majority of the audiovisual record of the human species 
to one corporation. Um, and it's not just, like I said, it's not just episodes of Twilight Zone that someone illegally ripped from their DVDs and put up there. It's people. It's actual people's lives and their works and uh, sometimes their meta, their meta works when it's when it's a call and response. Um, that's the thing that worries me the most. Is not that, not that the copyright system allows people to now just squat on things forever, but the fact that um, who owns them now, and we're setting it up so Google owns a lot of what's up there, like to a scary degree. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna. Thanks for in. bringing things down uh, a notch, Casey. Jeez, that's what keeps no. me up at night, guys. <laughs> Well, I then the the creepiest part about all of this is those same companies, Google and I'm sorry, Google owns YouTube, right? Yes, they do. So, um, is they have this sort of culture about them where they will publicly say, "Oh, do no evil, try and be as ethically responsible as you can." But you know, as soon as the shit hits the fan with that kind of stuff, hmm. they've got a legal team that's bigger than all of the people I've ever known, and then some. Yeah. So there's there's only so big you can get and really hew close to do no evil. Yeah, exactly. because it's. Actually, a lot cheaper to be evil. It's you cheaper say. to be evil. Do, it is. Do the point fives have titles? Because yes, they do. Cheaper. <laughs> it's cheaper to be evil. It totally is. Um, I mean, this is the thing that Captain Planet got wrong. I think <laughs> Captain Planet is to me really the equivalent of the sort of right wing sort of things that you know, like those Kirk Cameron movies, right? That have to create this cartoon reality to justify the ideology that they're pushing. You mean Ayn Rand books? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is that you have to create a cartoon world where you know, like a teachers' union is the most evil organization in the world, right? Worse than ISIS, right? And <laughs> you understand that for that thing, I'm with, for the reboot, I'm making the Planeteers eco terrorists, right? Yes. Okay. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> is that Captain Planet sort of has this idea that these supervillains are not people. That where pollution is a byproduct of the evil that they do, it is the purpose it's of their corp. Yeah, <laughs> this corporation builds nothing except sludge to dump in the river. <laughs> that is their goal. Where it's like I don't, I don't make fuel or refine oil or chop down trees to make things. I just chop down trees because fuck trees. What do you do, sir? Oh, I'm a toxic sludge salesman. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the idea that it's like they're evil for evil's sake, and it's like it's so. It's so cartoonish, and it's like it has its heart in the right place, but it's such a stereotype that it makes me want to just take a pile of styrofoam out to my backyard and set it on fire. <laughs> Are you gonna take some tape and like put your nose up and be like the pig guy? Yeah, the pig guy. Like, I love pollution. Ah, pirateers. Cosplay ideas. Oh my god. Uh, but yeah, um, actually the. But yeah, if you do Captain Planet Grim and Gritty, I will be so happy. Right okay. <laughs> but oh man, so I think that's probably a good place to stop. Yeah. With the Pigman. Yeah. Pig, <laughs> you can't top Pigman. <laughs> I think that's the name of the episode. <laughs> you can't top Pigman. Okay. Radio versus the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Dirty. 
then we'll call Captain Pollution. Let our polluting powers combine! Super radiation! Deforestation! Mad! Toxic! Hate! By your polluting powers, too! 